This is Wessler Media. Hey, it's Vince, host of Profiles. When you're done with this episode, if you would share it with a friend and even give us a five-star rating, it would really help us spread the word about Profiles. Thanks. Let's jump in. This is a Wessler Media production. You think you're crazy about roller coasters. Listen to these people. best park on the planet for crying out loud i love the way the fans all play the cedar point marching song Hey, I'm Vince Tornero, and welcome to this very first episode of Profiles. This is a series discovering the stories of the people, places, ideas, and events that make Ohio. Now, there are misconceptions that people have about Ohio, that there's not much here, there's not much going on, there's not much to discuss. You've got, you're just a giant cornfield between Pennsylvania and Indiana, that you're just a swing state, that we're a flyover state. You know what that means? That we're not even worth looking at when you're flying over us at 30,000 feet, enjoying a beverage and munching on some airline peanuts or pretzels. Well, we're here to tell you that you're wrong, and we're not delusional. We know that we don't have skyscrapers of New York or the glamour of California. We know that, you know, our interstates are sometimes kind of boring and that our winters seem to last as long as the road construction projects. You know, we may not have skyscrapers, but we have skyscraping roller coasters. We don't have the Walk of Fame, but we've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've got something here, and what we have is special. We're a community of great people who have even greater stories to tell, and they deserve to be told. So that's what we're doing here. That's what this series is. Profiles is a love letter addressed to Ohioans, written by Ohioans. This is not a bid for respect from other states because we don't need their validation. We know who we are. We're special. This is a celebration, and we're glad that you have joined. So for the first episode of this series, we made a stop to the city of Sandusky because in this little corner of our great state lies the capital. Yeah, I know, you know, Columbus is our state capital, but Sandusky Cedar Point is the roller coaster capital of the world. This gorgeous peninsula has seen some of the world's tallest roller coasters, the fastest ones. It is a land of firsts. It's where the boundaries of human ingenuity are tested. So without further ado, let's take a seat. Buckle in, keep our hands and feet inside the cart at all times, and enjoy the ride. Uh, my name is Ken Miller. Uh, officially, it's Kenneth, but I'll go by anything but Kenny. That sounds a little bit too third grade. So Ken is the author of a great book. It is called Rolling Through the Years, a Cedar Point Atlas and Chronology. He put a ton of work into this. He also works summers at the park. Okay, well, first of all, it's called Cedar Point because of the cedar trees. Point because it's a peninsula. So originally, it was uh, a wilderness. It's on the peninsula with the water. It's great views. I mean, the, the, the beauty of the area, I think, is... You, you can't match it any place. Cedar Point owes its existence to Lake Erie and the tempting white sand beach along its northern shore. The beach is what drew the first guests back in 1870. Um, nobody, as far as anybody knows, was actually living on there except for maybe some squatters. Um, but nobody was really doing anything with it until the mid-1800s, and people started having clam bakes on the beaches. 1870 came around, well, 1868 comes around, and uh, the, the local newspaper realized that a lot of people were going over to the beach on things like clam bakes, but there was nothing organized. There was no water taxi service. Uh, there was no infrastructure over there or anything like that. So they published an editorial asking for some entrepreneur to develop all that. 
1870, somebody first started doing that. Louise Estelle, a Sandusky entrepreneur, brought them across Sandusky Bay on a small sidewheel steamer named the Young Reindeer. And he started bringing people back and forth, and he put up buildings over there. So that's why Cedar Point uses 1870 as a starting year, because even though it was named Cedar Point before then, and people were going over there before then, 1870 is the first infrastructure. When they got to Cedar Point, folks could change in a rustic bathhouse and go bathing in the lake. Men and women, modestly separated by a screen, of course. Again, it was something that was not really organized as like a, a destination. Cedar Point at this time was characterized by its sandy white beaches, the beautiful blue water, the lush cedar forest, and it was truly laden with opportunity as the smell of baked clams wafted in the air. First name as it being as a resort was 1882. And that was the first company, the Cedar Point Resort Company. A uh, number of different entrepreneurs worked together from Sandusky and put everything together and started bringing people over. Uh, they built a lot of the main buildings back in the time. The owners of Cedar Point built a massive structure, which would be the center of resort activities for many years, the Grand Pavilion. Here you could take a meal in an elaborate dining room, listen to a lecture in an auditorium, or even participate in a game of bowling. Again, the 1880s, it wasn't taking off like a major thing. The very first roller coaster in the U.S. was the Switchback Railway, 1884, Coney Island in New York. But Cedar Point, a few years later, wasn't that far behind with one of their own. First coaster was 1892 at Cedar Point, yes. Was not the first one out there at all. Roller coasters have been around in Europe for a long time in different versions. But an important note on the Switchback Railway. Switchback is more of a type of coaster rather than a specific name. And it was actually just called the Cedar Point Coaster because it was the only one there. And there was no lift hill. There was no mechanicals. It was all gravity. So you walked to the top of the, of the first hill, two flights of stairs, got on the ride, gravity took over, pulled a U-turn at the far end, came back, got off the ride, and the guys working the ride pushed that car back up for the next people. The switchback railway is believed to have been about 25 feet tall. Riders would accelerate to the then unbelievable speed of 10 miles an hour or so. Very loose details, okay? The newspaper didn't print anything about the building, didn't have to file building permits. There's no blueprints, there's a photograph. So taking that photograph and scale, we get to 25 feet in height, doing a little bit of physics experiments with the angles, we get 10 to 12 miles an hour. I mean, it's not even a kid's ride, it's by today's standards. But back then, it was a big thing. Despite this innovation, by the mid-1890s, visitors were losing interest, and Cedar Point was losing money. The future didn't look all that bright. But that all changed in 1897 with the arrival of a visionary businessman from Indiana. His name was George Arthur Beckley. Without him, this, this would have never have happened. He was originally a resort guy. Hotels and corporate picnics and entertainment and you know, fine dining, all, all these kinds of things interested him more than anything else. But he saw that what was going on at Coney Island and other places, that the rides could pull people too. So that's our friend John. Uh, John Hildebrandt. I'm originally from Cleveland, live here in Sandusky now, and uh, I was an employee at Cedar Point for 40 years. From 2004 to 2013, he was the GM of the park. He's also the author of a great memoir called Always Cedar Point. And so he, he put electricity uh, into the park early in the 1900s, one of his first things. 
and uh, enough to have a midway and uh, bring it started bringing in rides and they were very popular. So he's a marketing genius. He could see the changes in society that was happening. For instance, people were starting to use cars. And even though it's a peninsula, it's hard to drive there. So one of the things he did was build that road. So what Ken is talking about right there is the causeway, the road that leads right into Cedar Point. I do think that Beckling had a bigger impact over the overall development than anybody else. I don't even think it's close. The next major change was due to Beckling's business sense. He reasoned that the longer guests stayed at Cedar Point, the better off the resort would be. With that in mind, Cedar Point's first large hotel, the White House, was built in 1901 on the bay side of the peninsula near the boat landing. He realized that if you have the people stay on the peninsula longer, the park will do better financially. And it sold out like immediately. It had 55 rooms and proved to be so successful that two years later, 70 more rooms were added in two large wings. But the White House was just the beginning of Beckling's plans for expanding accommodations at the resort. The Hotel Breakers opened in a blaze of glory on June 12, 1905. It contained 600 rooms, most with a view of Lake Erie. And everything was designed that you had a good view either of the lake or the peninsula. So there, there was no bad views out your window. Um, it was high tech for the time because it had individual bathrooms on some of the rooms. So picture this, you're in your room at Hotel Breakers, you're relaxing, you're looking at the sights, you're taking in the beautiful views, and you get a little bit of a hankering to go down to the lobby to get some booze. But as we head into the Prohibition era, that would have proved to be a little bit difficult. Alcohol is profitable. Back then it was illegal to sell alcohol on Sundays anyways. Beckling got accused of selling alcohol at Cedar Point on Sundays, and they threatened to arrest him. So he started selling it on the ferry boats, getting to and from Cedar Point. So you can get plastered on the way there, sober up while you're doing all this stuff at Cedar Point, and then get plastered on the way home. Obviously, the city fathers that were against it didn't like that too much. So the following February, the board of directors announces that because of all this, they weren't going to open up at all. And the excursion trains that were making tons of money by bringing people to Cedar Point by train got involved and put some pressure on. And they finally, right before the park was scheduled to open, they decided, yeah, we were going to open. And then prohibition started hitting. And the problem is, is Cedar Point, the peninsula, is 32 miles away from mainland Canada. If you have a good boat, you can get back and forth. But it was actually uh, during this time that another attraction emerged. But when you talk about early Cedar Point thrill rides, none topped the Cyclone, which opened in 1929. Well, Cyclone is actually more of a franchise than anything else. I mean, there are Cyclones all over the country. Same guy built all of them. The Cyclone was built by renowned coaster designer Harry Traver, who also designed the legendary Cyclone at Coney Island. The 72-foot-tall speeding monster struck fear in the hearts of many. Riding it became a rite of passage for visiting teenagers. It was scientifically built for speed is the big deal back then. Uh, it was considered to be a relatively rough ride. They found things lost and found underneath all the time. We're talking no seatbelts, no height requirements. You couldn't take a handheld infant with you, but you could take a five-year-old with you with no problems. 
Unfortunately, the cyclone was the last great addition to Cedar Point for many years. The whole country would begin its own downhill ride with a stock market crash in late 1929. And Cedar Point's operation was shaken by George Beckling's death in 1931. He passed away right at the start of the Depression. And basically, people did not have money to spend it on anything except for staying alive. So it was a, a struggle. I mean, it was a reduced operating season. The attendance didn't drop to nothing, but went way down. A lot of amusement parks in the industry shut down for the, that time period and then reopened or didn't reopen. Uh, Cedar Point actually managed to stay open every year. Then World War II hit, and all your manpower is gone. Wartime gasoline restrictions made travel difficult. During the war years, Cedar Point probably would not have survived were it not for the loyal patronage of Sandusky residents. So that right there is an example of how special the park is to Ohioans. It beat Prohibition, it beat the Depression, it even beat World War II. With the end of World War II, Cedar Point really entered a new era of opportunity, but it really took the vision and hard work of a couple of guys to make it happen. Two investors, uh, good friends, one's from Cleveland, one's from Toledo, and um, Emile Legros, I think is the pronunciation, and George Bruce. George Bruce and Emile Legros, who are kind of fading into the background now, deserve enormous credit for what they did. Playing loose a little bit with the details, but they basically saw this and found out that this was going to be a great investment. And they saw an opportunity and said, okay, let's go ahead and do this. The late George Roos and a Cleveland businessman, the late Emile LaGrosse, bought the entire peninsula and planned to turn it into a housing development. But Cedar Point's lease as an amusement park didn't end until 1959. One of the game plans was taking the end of the peninsula where Frontier Town is now and making that a residential area, 3,000 ranch houses and the whole bit, and leave the hotel and maybe part of the amusement park. Government was not for it. We don't want to lose the amusement park. We don't want to definitely lose a public beach. And so they had a change of plan. In 1960, Roos and LaGrosse announced their plans to spend $16 million to turn Cedar Point into an Ohio Disneyland. We're going to make this the Disneyland of the Midwest. These two investors, who are often cited as the ones who ushered in an exciting new era of Cedar Point history, initially started off as villains because they wanted to turn the area into a housing development. But the community fought back. And this is truly a testament to how much the city loved Cedar Point, but also how hard it is to break bureaucratic red tape. In 1960, the slogan was, everybody's going to the new Cedar Point. And in a whole lot of ways, that was true. It grew so fast in the 60s, once they made that commitment, uh, that in terms of how they marketed the park, how they added attractions, how they grew it, uh, it became a, a big destination for our, our part of the world. They changed a lot of the business practices. The whole thing became more family-oriented, less on the um, Coney Island attraction, game, carny atmosphere, and became also more of a family atmosphere. It's the best ride park in the world, but it's also a resort. It's got a beach, hotels, marina, uh, and, and a, a history of, the, of, the, of that kind of entertainment. For the first couple of years, it was a, it was a flat rate admission go in, and then it was you pay for the rides as you go also. That kept a lot of the riffraff, for lack of a better word, 
out of the park because you couldn't go over there unless you were going to pay a dollar to get in. And a dollar in the 60s is a chunk of money. The major investment for the 1964 season was the blue screen, which was unpainted wood for the first few years instead of the sky blue we're used to now. Well, the 60s still weren't necessarily about the rides per se. It was still a family atmosphere. The blue streak was 64, um, but it wasn't necessarily about the rides. So if you look at a 1960s ad in a newspaper, it probably will not mention the blue streak, but will mention the live entertainment that's going on or the, or the family attractions and the beach and that kind of thing. There are over 60 rides and attractions. You had the Cadillac cars, the Cedar Point Lake Erie Railroad, the earthquake attraction, and in 1967, Frontier Town. Opening up Frontier Town was a huge thing. Frontier Town was basically using the back wooded area peninsula-wise. So originally, there was just the lagoons were there. Um, but originally, the only way to get back there was by train. And then they built a skylift so you could get back there that way. And it was its own little world. Frontier Town, Cedar Point's first themed area, was founded in 1967 with Shoot the Rapids, a train station, and a gift shop. Over the years, it would be connected to the main midway with a frontier lift, which ran from 1968 through 1985. Had some issues. If we have a huge storm, you're kind of stranded, because um, the only way you could get there was either by train or by skylift. That train has been, the, not the train itself, but the train track, it's been hit by lightning. So they also had so a good amount of land in between Frontier Town and the main Midway area. And so they decided to open up a Frontier Trail. And the Frontier Trail, which opened in 1971. Frontier Trail solved a lot of problems and went from the one train station basically back to Frontier Town. So the late 1960s into the 1970s brought some really cool stuff at the park. You had the Cedar Point and Lake Erie Railroad. You had the Cedar Creek Mine Ride. Jungle Larry's uh, Safari Show was in full swing. And in 1971, Frontier Town, you had the Frontier Trail, which opened. So I know you must be thinking, when are we going to get to these landmark coasters? Well, Ken's got that covered right here. So the 70s is when the rides actually started taking over a little bit more. And this is about the time when Cedar Point's streak of must-ride roller coasters started. However, it was also the start of their future general manager's career. Because in 1974, a young guy named John Hildebrandt began his career in the marketing department. I was an English major. You know, I was going to be a great American novelist or, or something like that. Uh, not, not, uh, didn't see, I had never saw myself uh, as an advertising guy, per se, or a marketing guy. But uh, we found out it's a lot of fun to try to persuade people to do something. The focus slowly was changing over to the adrenaline. Advertisements started being the name attractions more so than the entertainment. Television as a medium is just tailor-made for selling a product like Cedar Point because you want to see it. And you show people enjoying that product. It's very visual. TV is very good at showing emotion. Naming a, a ride became a lot more important. I was a part of the naming process for, for m many of the rides, most of them, and uh, that was always uh, an interesting exercise. We used to joke that uh, if the owners of the company really knew how we, how we came up with the names, we'd all be fired. <laughs> so what was the first roller coaster that John had a shot at naming? Corkscrew would have been the first roller coaster that, that I, I participated in as a marketing person. That was in 1976. Corkscrew originally was going to be called something else. They've always bounced things around. We wanted to regionalize it and, and 
by that, you know, associated with Ohio and everything. We came up with the idea of the end of Lake Erie, the Great Lake Erie Roller, which uh, actually was my name. So, so I thought it was brilliant. And a couple of our board of directors who lived in Cleveland at the time, they didn't really like it. They said, why don't we just call it the generic corkscrew? Corkscrew is a great visual ride. I mean, it's right over the main midway. You can sit underneath it and look at people upside down 30 feet above you and listen to them scream. That whole summer, people would stop in droves by the hunters and just stop there in the midway and look straight up and watch that car roar past your, your head like you could almost reach out and touch it. And that hadn't been done before. Usually, rides are off, you went away somewhere and came back to the main midway, the stations and stuff. But this was integrated right into the midway. We knew we really had something. The 1976 Corkscrew was the first roller coaster in the world to go upside down three times. The perspective is such a change now. When you look back on it, it's nostalgic because it's, it's still a thrill. It's still a good ride, uh, but it's not... Not like the big rides that, that we have today, but at the time, believe me, it was. So the Corkscrew would be considered quaint by today's standards, but it's a big, blue, beautiful ride. It's iconic right there smack dab in the middle of the midway. It was a big deal when it opened up. However, Cedar Point's hot streak of iconic coasters would continue with the latest edition in 1978. Meanwhile, the racing Gemini debuted as the tallest roller coaster in the world two years later. It towers 125 feet above the midway. That was, as I'm always reminding people at the time, the highest, steepest, and fastest roller coaster in the world when it opened. And the naming of it was interesting because you throw all these names back and forth. And I've got, down in my basement, I've got a card index about yay thick, several inches thick of all names. And we have, we have lots of reject names. <laughs> So John has a stack of pink note cards, and it has every name that Gemini could have been. It's about two inches thick, and we went down to his basement to check it out. World's biggest thing, okay. These are the list of names that were considered for Gemini. So Gemini could have been... Big Top, Double Trouble, Screaming Banshee, why not Screaming Banshee? (laughs) Thunder Flash, Super... Super Streaker, <laughs> uh, Thunderbird, Flying Tiger, Sky Zipper. Why not Sky Zipper? Why wouldn't you go with Sky Zipper? I couldn't tell you now. <laughs> the rolling, the rolling thunder roll. Let's see. You know, we 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 got it down to a few. One one of the persons in our advertising agency at the time, Mark Mark and Company, who was not a creative person, he worked in the market research department, numbers guy. He came up with Gemini, and it was like, well, Gemini, yeah, twins, right? it all works. Yeah, the name for Gemini was perfect because of its two-train racing design. But for John, this coaster was personal. Uh, we have twin twin boys, Mike and Tom, who are now, I think, 43. <laughs> they, they were born two days before the ride opened. Excuse me, two days after. So I was teased unmercifully. When we did open it, uh, it just took off. And the first, the first drop is terrific, 125 feet. Any, any coaster fanatic at the time would tell you that. The eventual success of Gemini was unmatched at the time, but the ride's opening was not without its fair share of drama. The ride ran, opened late because of this horribly severe winter we had, and the pressure, we, pressure built quite a bit, and everybody's pretty nervous. 
And our, our vice chairman was uh, George Roos at the time. He convinced Governor Rhodes to come up to uh, open the ride. The governor turned out had, a, had like an early golf date. She didn't tell anybody about it. So he, st- he starts talking at breakfast and then he suddenly cuts to, uh, well, George, let's go out and ride that roller coaster. And the whole room stands up and this is like, you know, they're like an hour ahead of time. <laughs> So we marched into the into the park, and you could see everybody running around on, on the station. And we had to lead them right down to the station, about 100 people. Before we sent a ride with people, we always ride them empty. That's the last thing that every ride does. There, there was no weight on the empty train. And when it got up to the top, and it went down, and then it stopped. It didn't come back to the station. <laughs> and at the same time... Um, the, the CEO, Bob Munger, is walking out. He didn't know about it because he's, he's, he's not supposed to be there for another hour. And, uh, and he sees the, the ride hung up there and, and the governor taken off. And <laughs> I think he was so mad he bit his cigar in half. Now, I don't think we've ever had one with that much drama. <laughs> From the end of the 70s into the 80s, you saw additions like Corkscrew and Gemini in the park. This really seemed to be kind of a coming-of-age period for Cedar Point. However, in the early 80s, there were some additions that weren't coasters. Cedar Point didn't neglect the rest of the family as it continued to satisfy thrill seekers. The 1980s also brought Oceana, Berenstain Bear Country, Kid Arthur's Court, and the Junior Gemini. Of course, the fast rides kept coming too. The Demon Drop, Thunder Canyon, and Iron Dragon. We did Demon Drop in, in 83, which is you know very scary, very high thrill ride. But, uh, but not a coaster. Demon Drop for a free fall, uh, very great ride on the skyline. Again, at the front gate, so you see it, you walk in, and you hear this scream coming off of it, um, sometimes male, sometimes female, because um, it's, it's important having something adrenaline at a front gate of an amusement park to kind of gather the attention. Cedar Point has conjured up a diabolical new ride. The ordeal begins with a 131-foot climb through its shivering steel skeleton. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dotcom The Hacking, a new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for Dotcom, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. All right, so pop quiz. Think about this. Who was the voice of the Demon Drop advertising, the voice of the ride, Demon Drop? Think about it. Think about it. Ghost host. That's your hint. Okay, time's up. The ghost host of Disney's Haunted Mansion, that voiceover guy in the stretching room, there are no windows or doors. Yes, Paul Freeze, the voiceover actor for the Haunted Mansion, also did the voice for the Demon Drop ride and advertising. And this ride was really popular, but it wasn't doing so hot after a while. The main problem with Demon Drop was the novelty had worn off. People were like, I love this ride. We got to go do Raptor. We'll come back to it. And then they were coming back to it. So they moved it to Dorney in Pennsylvania. Right there, Ken is talking about Dorney Park, which is owned by Cedar Fair, Cedar Point's parent company, who in 1986, they got a new CEO, Richard Kinzel. Kinzel did so much. Um, started the Coaster Wars. 
you know, basically changed to your point from a family park focus to the adrenaline focus. The coaster wars are basically like an arms race, the amusement park industry. You have each park wanting to make the bigger, the better, the better roller coaster. In Cedar Point, they fired the first shot in 89 with their record breaker, Magnum. And here's how Ken would describe it. Game changer. Magnum. An incredible world record breaking roller coaster brought international fame to Cedar Point. The world's highest and fastest roller coaster. Magnum is going to be a white knuckle ride. It's uh, 201 feet to the peak, and you're going to be dropping at a 60-degree angle. Park-defining kind of over-the-top success in, in every way, internationally, nationally. I mean, everyone paid attention to this. Well, first of all, the name is fantastic. Magnum, if you look it up, is uh, it's a very powerful handgun, is a large volume of wine, um, XL, extra large, 200. First one over 200 feet. It wasn't decided that way. It was decided at 185. And at a board meeting, one of the directors kind of threw out the question, what if we went another 15 feet? You could have so much more marketing buzz with that. How much more would it cost? And they, I forget what it was, what the amount was, but Dick Kinsel used to say we paid for it in the first day. At the miles worth of twisting and turning track that at one point reaches 201 feet into the air. That's higher than the Statue of Liberty and the nose of the space shuttle just before it's about to lift off. Hold on to your hats. We're about to take a ride. First 200. First 200. Never before done. People love that. People, if you can give that, that to people, I'll take it every day. They had people coming in from all over the world just to ride this ride. You had to do the Magnum. Dozens of roller coaster enthusiasts are streaming into Cedar Point today to take on their latest challenge, the tallest and fastest roller coaster of them all. Excitement is at fever pitch. Um, opening weekend, it's about four hours worth of people. And people waited, and they had disc jockeys in the, in the line, and people were bouncing beach balls like they were at a rock concert. And uh, you went on the ride, and that may be the only thing you actually did all day, but that was enough. We interviewed people coming off the magnet for about three hours. We paid them a buck and said, so what did you, you think of the magnet? And then people just went off. The last session, we were discussing why you ride Magnum at Cedar Point. Because it's a recent phenomena that tests the threshold of fear. Talk about recent. Okay, 17th century, no such thing. Who could have imagined such a thing? Then along comes this Magnum who's trying to convince people that riding a roller coaster is a purification process. Mm. This ad that I think uh, you could still run today. It's, it's, um, so what's it like to ride the Magnum? Okay, and he used all file footage, picked up stuff of um, race car drivers uh, screaming around a turn, uh, surfers, uh, guitar play, you know, all these quick, quick, quick cuts. So what's it like to ride the Magnum XL 200? There's really nothing compared to riding the Magnum, the highest, steepest, fastest roller coaster in the world. It really took the entire amusement park industry and kind of turned it around. But Cedar Point's streak of incredible coasters would continue with the addition of an unkind, iconic giant. This ride also attracted a superfan who rode it enough times that it equaled the distance of going to Texas and back at least five times. 
You're going to hear more about that in 60 seconds. But first, let's talk briefly about what we do here at Wessler Media. You know, you're hearing uh, the stories from uh, Ken Miller. You got John Hildebrandt. You hear, um, you know, all of these great legacies about how important this park is to these individuals and how Cedar Point is uh, an icon in Sandusky. And for so many people, it's a great destination because that is a source of so many memories. People go there and relive memories and make new memories. But what happens sometimes when those memories are gone and you can't experience them anymore? You need to preserve those legacies. Those legacies, those stories, those things are important. That is what we ultimately do here at Wessler Media. That is what we're doing for the legacy of Cedar Point and the story of Ohio with this series of profiles. So if you would, consider making your own personal size podcast. We call it like an audio scrapbook. Go to our website and see what we do. It's wesslermedia.com. That is W-E-S-S-L-E-R media.com. Preserve your legacy, keep those memories, and they could be an experience you go back to again and again and again. So that's wesslermedia.com, W-E-S-S-L-E-R media.com. All right, so back to Cedar Point. The 80s, they're coming to an end. Cedar Point, they are on top, just set their attendance record, over 3 million in the 89 season. Tallest, fastest roller coasters on that little stretch of land, and they are not slowing down. Don't want to come off like they were resting on the laurels, because they weren't. We thought at the time, we did it with, with Magnum in 89, best in the world, the king of coasters. You know, now we're going to do it on the wood side. The mean street. How tall could it be? It's oh, fast. It's the tallest, hugest, largest mammoth wooden roller coaster. It's the highest wooden roller coaster in the world. So with as many coasters there are in the park, there are these subcultures, these people who love these coasters so much, they make it a part of their identity. We spoke with one special fan, Henry Sievers, who is known better by his nickname. Me Street Henry here. Since 91, I had 16,174 rides. Yeah, you heard that right. Over 16,000 rides on Main Street. Somebody figured out it's like riding Main Street to uh, Texas five times and back. A lot of times late at night. I go Main Street, we hire anybody there. Main Street was a um, appropriately named. It was mean. My nickname was Chiropractic Central because the first time I got off of it, I felt like I just had gotten home from a bad chiropractor. Um, there are some people that think they go on to avoid going to a good chiropractor because it cracked their back just right. A rough first drop. It delivers. And here, see, you're getting lateral G's. You go to the side, diagonally. You're plunging. It's phenomenal. So fast. You would have an hour wait for Millennium Force, an hour wait for this ride, an hour for this ride, and a five-minute wait for Mean Streak because the only people going on it were the people who had never been on it before. It was an enormous undertaking to build that ride, and I think put the, put the company that built it out of you know, bankrupt. They couldn't; they overextended themselves, and really, wooden roller coasters are not meant to be that big. To, to maintain something that big, uh, it's just enormously expensive. Mean Streak decommissioned in 2016 after more than 25 years of service. This type of decision never easy for the park. It's a very big issue. It's something parks wrestle with all the time. Uh, when does when decommission a ride or when to sell it? And, and what to move in its place and that sort of thing. Because people do have, you know, emotional attachments to certain rides. People like Mean Streak Henry. It was September 16th when I did 
to my final ride on it. And then at night time, uh, I knew sort of ahead of time mm-hmm. that they said they're going to eventually do away with it. I said, well, you know, time's got to move on. Even though Mean Streak is no more, you know, it found life and it gave life to a new attraction. You've got, I think it's 1.6 million feet of board lumber. I mean, it's enough to build a small subdivision. Nobody wants that much used lumber. The park found a perfect way to use all of that wood. They used it as a support structure for a new coaster. Steel Vengeance. Beautiful ride, one of the most gorgeous rides I've ever seen. It's different enough that the industry considers it to be a new ride. And Amusement Today magazine rated it number the best new ride in the world its first year. That's huge. Just getting nominated is great. Winning it, fantastic. And it's still a highly popular ride. Um, I mean, it's just I think it's at like something like eight or nine world records. Just a huge amount of stuff, you know, and uh, just a fantastic ride. Steel Vengeance is in the back of the park, and it is one of those rides where when I got off that ride for the first time, I asked myself, what the heck just happened? I can remember recently even riding it with my nephew and looking to my right and seeing the expression on his face of sheer terror. It was fantastic. So it's a great ride. Highly recommend you check it out. But enough about that. We got a little out of order here with the timeline. So let's jump back into the 90s. In 1994, Raptor soared onto the midway as the first of a new generation of coasters. The inverted thriller turns riders upside down six times as they hang from the track, helpless in the grip of the steely swooping monster. Raptor rules the sky and the hearts of many coaster enthusiasts. Raptor, it was the year that Cedar Point set its all-time attendance record. By, by, it wasn't even close, it's way ahead of every other year. Everything clicked in 94. Raptor was the first main change on the Midway for a long time. Uh, replaced a ride called the Mill Race, which was not a favorite, um, but it had been there for quite a while. And it did a lot of great things. Raptor revolutionized the front part of the park. You know, it changed the skyline of Cedar Point forever. Uh, invented something that's called a Cobra Roll, it's a new type of inversion. And just extremely smooth, very fast. And definitely gave you the impression of being fast, even though I don't think it was a record breaker at that time. It's also a noisy ride. You can hear it from a long distance away because those metal structures holding up everything, they did not insulate them. The Raptor was a different kind of cell. Magnum is high, steep, as fast as stats, man, they were very important. Raptor was a ride experience. It's a little trickier. You have to sell that, that experience. Because it was, well, for the type of ride it was, it was the biggest. It, you know, it, the stats didn't compare to a, a, a Magnum. So the, I know the, the, the TV execution we did for it was, you know, a bird of prey coming down, and this kid's looking up, and then the next thing you know, he gets lifted out. You try to run, but can't. And in the split second before you're carried away, dangling helplessly from iron grip clutches, you look into its eyes. Raptor, a monstrous, menacing bird of prey. So Raptor, as you heard, is obviously very important to the front of the park. You have a great show. It's an iconic attraction. But you also had the addition in the 90s of Mantis and Power Tower and a few other things. But nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, for those of us who love this ride so much, we call it Millie. And this one came in the year 2000. 
Was there something out there? A higher intelligence? A mysterious force at work? Beyond words? Beyond comprehension? Beyond? Beyond? Millennium Force. It's a fantastic ride, and you can see it from miles away. You know, we're talking 300 feet, it's taller than Godzilla. The original Godzilla. <laughs> Beyond dimensions, we understand. A natural force simply known as Millennium Force. First opening day. Um, the line, the first day, I believe, went onto the main midway, and then they started redirecting it up toward Frontier Trail, you know, in the sign carver area. And that's a four hour wait easily. You know, the Millennium Discussion um, was another big big manufacturer at the time. And they proposed two chain lifts. It would take a long time to want to send everything out. And the other manufacturer, um, Indeman, which ended up building the roller coaster, they said, we have a different approach. We're going to do this elevator lift technology. Actually, old technology, but to pull it straight, almost straight up. The angle's much steeper so you're going to need you have more space for run out on the, on the back end and we can make it fit on this on the, on the piece of property or where we wanted to do it back in the early 90s i don't think millennium force could have been built technology wise so they kind of had a way for a lot of the developments to catch up with them and i have talked to a few people that work for the manufacturers and they say you know you think of it we can do it the problem is doing it without killing somebody <laughs> Millennium Force actually set 10 world records, I mean, things that had never been done before. And if you add up the number of awards, one is the most highly awarded ride ever. It's pretty much on everybody's bucket list even now. So just wanted to pause here for a second and let you know that for strictly research purposes, my producer and I went to the park and enjoyed some of the great rides. We waited two and a half hours in line for Millennium Force. It was a fantastic experience. We got front row at night. And when we got off the ride, there was like 17 bug splats on my shirt. So word to the wise, if you're going to do Millennium Force at night front row, keep your mouth closed. And even though I believe, as you know, Millennium Force is the goat of the park, this ride in terms of height was about to be bested by another behemoth known as Top Thrill Dragster. Introducing Top Thrill Dragster. Coming in 2003 to Cedar Point. You know, Dragster also, again, was groundbreaking on the technology. It, it involved stuff that had never been done before or had been done not to that scale. And so the first year was a lot of adjustments. So the adjustments Ken is talking about there is so the ride goes all the way over the hill because sometimes Top Thrill Dragster does not have enough momentum to go over the top hill and thus it rolls back. It, it's safe to have a rollback. Um, the ride's completely designed. If it does not make it up over that hill and rolls right back into the station, it's totally fine. Uh, park tries not to do that too often, though. So you can either make it over, you have a rollback, and there's also a third ride experience that blew my mind. But it actually is balanced at the top once, too. More than once. Once with people. And that's like balancing a dime on top of a needle. It's hard to do. I was working Town Hall Museum and had a couple co-workers with me and we looked outside and everybody had stopped and was looking up and we're like okay no big deal you know the blunt's going overhead or something like that and we go we'll go outside and we saw the anti-car 
ride operators right next to Town Hall had stopped working their ride and had their phones out and everybody was looking up and pulling up at Dragster. And we went out there on the porch and looked and it was balanced at the top. Yeah, send some guy up there with a huge crowbar and lever him over. So I want to know how big of a crowbar you need to get Top Thrill Dragster to go over the hill all the way. And a couple of years later, after it opened, Cedar Point was still making moves. The next major coaster was Maverick. Maverick name, Bucking Bronco is a perfect name for it. Maverick is a great coaster and very popular in the park. One ride on that would fix me for the day. You know, <laughs> I wasn't worth much the rest of the day. If you're ever like on the turnpike, you look off in the distance, doesn't look like you're going that fast. You look at the guardrails next to you, it looks like you, yeah, you, now you know you're going 70 miles an hour. It's the same thing with Maverick. Since you're right next to the formations and the rock and the landscaping, you get that sense that you're going a lot faster than 92 miles an hour, 100 feet off the ground like you are in Malayan Forest. In, in surveys, it would come back really strong. As, so a lot of people think it's the best ride we have, even though it's not big. It's not, it's not even 100 feet. It's not a record breaker by any sense, but it's still one of the four main coasters over there in terms of popularity and lines and that kind of thing. I think if, if, a, if a ride is really great and another one comes along and it's 10 feet higher, it doesn't necessarily mean it's better. So in the 50s and 60s, it was the goal of Cedar Point to become the Disneyland of the Midwest. And if, generally speaking, you compare the two park experiences, you have the Disney dark rides and then you have Cedar Point thrill rides. But Cedar Point does have a few dark rides in its history, namely the Earthquake Ride, which is now the Snoopy Boutique. Or over by Chickies and Pete's, you had the Pirate Ride. But I'd say probably the most famous dark ride in Cedar Point's history is one called Disaster Transport, which began as Avalanche Run. It's called Avalanche Run. Disneyland doesn't have anything like it. Okay, Avalanche Run uh, bobsled, basically. Very unique. It was a popular ride, but it had some issues. And the main one was sand. You get a strong wind, and the sand gets into everything. Um, so what they decided to do is enclose it and uh, retheme it. I think it was sort of uh, trying to compete a little bit with Space Mountain, uh, but they call it disaster transport. Next time you get bored with life on Earth... Disaster transport. They had lots of problems with the special effects. They had fake asteroids hanging around that you could see as you were flying through this on the coaster. And they had one fall off and go into the track and just all sorts of fun stuff. So they finally phased it out and brought in Gatekeeper. So in the same year that Gatekeeper joined the Cedar Point family, the park had to say goodbye to a very important person. John Hillebrandt in 2013 retired. I was in my 60s, and there is a kind of um, physical requirement. I used to carry a pedometer. I'd walk 10, 12 miles a day. He was constantly out in the park, and he was also very approachable. I was actually upset when he retired because I thought he could get that going for a while because, you know, you know, he's not that much older than I am. There are a lot of folks, we were blessed with a lot of folks in our organization that really believed um, that we were the best in the world at what we did. I, I had such a lucky job that I could walk out the door, things get, had a bad day, I'd walk out on the midway, and there's 20,000 people having a great time. How do you beat that? 
John was with the park from 74 to 2013, and he had a very successful career for 40 years. This guy really devoted a huge part of his life to the legacy of this park, but he never got to name a coaster. So I asked him if that bothered him. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I, would, I would like to have that as an epitaph, you know, a legacy, if you will. Nevertheless, John has nothing but fond memories for the park and his tenure there. And even though he's closing on an almost a decade of retirement, he's still very eager to meet us at the Midway. And I got to tell you, his love for the park was still very much evident. So here we are. The Midway. Cedar Point's main Midway this is kind of a noisy place, but noisy in a good way. So if you come here with your, with your grandkids or with family, do you still pick up trash? Yes, I do. Can you not help yourself? <laughs> It's instinctual. As we walked to the park, John told us a story about his last day on the job, how he spent his last hours as general manager, how he and his wife Marie spent time together and got one last ride on Gemini, a ride he still associates with his twin sons. My wife and I took the train. We were the only people on the train. We took the last official ride of the season, which I considered a high honor. And we all, get, we all gathered out here by the front and uh, all went on board and, uh, and uh, you know, I had a lot, lot, of, lot of feelings about the first time I rode it and the first time I grew up with the kids and my grandkids riding it. And it was all, all wonderful. As we were leaving the park, we passed a restaurant called Hugo's. It used to be called the Midway Market, what we called it. Converted it into a Hugo's, which is sort of an Italian, not a buffet, but a, kind of a fast food sit-down you know, restaurant, which has done very well. And of course, that's my room, and Hugo. That was really cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool that Cedar Point decided to honor John's legacy by naming a restaurant after him called Hugo's because his full name is Hugo John Hildebrandt. So when you go there and have a pizza or a stromboli, you can think of our friend, Mr. Hildebrandt. But moving forward in Cedar Point's history, you had Mantis changing to Rougarou, Val Raving, Gatekeeper, and Mean Streak switched into Steel Vengeance. So leads us to ask the question of Ken, what's next? I stopped guessing a long time ago because I've been wrong every single time. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really funny, and I heard this from somebody that was high up, is that every once in a while, they would actually go out into the main midway with a can of spray paint and put some electrical markings down on the pavement and go back to their office and see how long it would take to get on the internet. I mean, the one thing that is about Cedar Point is there's speculation all over the place. Regardless of what comes next, one thing is for certain is that Cedar Point is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. Its importance to Ohio cannot be overstated. Obviously, the park plays an important economic factor with the amount of tourism it attracts. And of course, it's nice to have the spotlight shine on our little corner of the world when people talk about the best amusement parks because we got it right here. But really, there's more to it. For many Ohioans, including us, Cedar Point is where they spent their summers. It's where they conquered their fear heights or maybe heard their dad scream for the first time. It's also where they claim bragging rights over their sibling who maybe was too afraid to ride Top Little Dragster. For many people, including us, it's a second home. Cedar Point has, has a far-reaching impact, I think, for, for all across northern Ohio, certainly. We're the number one park in Toledo. People in Toledo think of Cedar Point as their home park. People in Cleveland think of Cedar Point as their home park. Even Akron and Canton, they still think of Cedar Point as their home park. And parts of Columbus. And it's been an institution in Ohio for a long, long, long time, you know, uh, 150 years. That, that's a lot. It, it, it's, it's iconic to, see, to 
to Ohio, I think. It's the identity for Ohio. You say Ohio to many people, they think different things. Um, but for so many people, this is a destination. This is a bucket list place. We have people flying in from all over the world to come to Ohio for Cedar Point. That's huge. From Wessler Media, this has been Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero, president and executive producer at Wessler Media and host of this podcast. This podcast has been created by me and my associate producer, Kevin Skubeck. And we've got to thank John Hilderant, who could not have been nicer to us because we did a two-hour interview at his house, then came back and visited with him at the park in the blazing heat. And not only that, much of the audio you hear spliced into this episode, including this really nice slow jam you hear in the background, came from John's personal archives, including the 95 documentary, A Summertime Tradition on Lake Erie, which is really great, by the way. Check it out. It's in the link in the show notes. Also, thanks to Ken Miller, because without that guy's expertise and incredible depth of knowledge about Cedar Point, this podcast would not have been possible. And we did the two interviews with Ken inside the Sandusky Library. So we've got to show some love to Molly and the rest of her team at the library who were so helpful and nice to us. So to check out John's book and Ken's book, which you both thoroughly read and enjoyed, see the link in the notes where there are additional bits of info about this episode, including more on what we do here at Wessler Media. So if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and share with family and friends as it will help us share the love that we have, and I'm sure you have too, for the great state of Ohio. I'm Vince Tornero, host of Profiles. We'll see you next time. On the next episode of Profiles, it is the terrifying Zanesville animal escape. Did we have conversations and thoughts about, you know, could there be one or two animals get out at a time? Yeah, sure, I think everybody realized that. I don't think anybody really ever thought that we would be dealing with what we had to deal with. I turn, and here comes a black bear running right at me. A friend tried to tranquilize a big cat, and the cat killed his friend. When we started into this, we just had the wolf and everything else was back in, and now it's all snowballed into hell. All right, 560, right on the interstate, on the interstate. Here it comes, 54. End of recording. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.